Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as this week we're going to be speaking with Levi Fawcett, who's one of the co-founders of Partly. Now, this is a great conversation because he's been involved as an entrepreneur from a very young age, and right through university, he was setting up startups, and then he went to work for Rocket Lab. So we find out a lot about that and his experience in sending rockets into space. And since then, he moved on to co-found All Goods and then Partly. Some of the key takeaways from me from this discussion were the idea of not being afraid to be ambitious and aiming high, getting the right people involved and establishing a good culture, learning from what you try at first. Nothing is ever wasted. Even if things aren't a success, it will provide fuel for the next initiative. And also, be really prepared to have hard conversations if things are going along just fine. Maybe you need to ask some hard questions and pivot into something that's slightly different or new. If you enjoy this interview, then remember there's more than 240 in the back catalog. What we're doing here is building up a database of stories of inspiring Kiwis who are doing some amazing things with their lives. And you can check out more at theseeds.nz. There's a LinkedIn page, a Twitter account, a Facebook page. So lots of ways to connect. Now let's get straight into this interview with Levi. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Levi Fawcett, who's the founder and CEO of Partly. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, I've been kind of watching your journey for a while now and, um, and even helping you a little bit in it. And so it's been really um, exciting to see a startup that's based here in Christchurch and doing some great things, growing quite a lot recently. And I'd love to find out about that startup journey and a bit of your story. Um, but before we go there, I always like to go back in time with people and find out a bit about their backgrounds. So in your case, could you describe where you're from and what was life like for you when you were a child? Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really far back. To start off with, I was, I was actually born in Nelson, so still here in New Zealand. I spent the first five years of my life uh, with my, my family there before we moved to Christchurch. So do you remember moving to Christchurch? Like, were you old enough where it was a thing? Like, I, I, I do. I vaguely remember. I remember traveling from Nelson. I don't mm-hmm. really remember a lot of living in Nelson. Mm-hmm. When we were here in Christchurch, we lived in a caravan and, and then a shed for maybe 10 years. Oh, okay. Um, so that's, that's pretty much where my earliest memories are of the caravan and then of the shed and, right. and sort of that, that, that stage of my life growing up. So that was real tiny home lifestyle then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It was sort of um, tiny homes before they were before they were hip. Before they were a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And where was that located in Christchurch City or outside? Or? No, it was just outside of Christchurch um, in Sefton, which just outside Rangiora. Mm-hmm. So we had a little lifestyle block there, and um, and we lived in. It was a it was a reasonably nice shed. It was renovated. Um, but we just lived in that and built, right. so built there the house. There weren't animals walking in and out. Well, sometimes, or- <laughs> but <laughs> uh, not most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite a rural outlook. Then you're growing up surrounded, you know, in in nature. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, I'd say most of my upbringing was on a on a lifestyle block. Um, mm-hmm. So we had all of the the sheep and the cows, and that was what I spent a lot of time doing. When I was younger, and same with with building building the house, working on the house with my with my dad. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And what had inspired your parents to want to do a sort of lifestyle block lifestyle? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I think they liked the idea of having some land and having the freedom for us to sort of have pets and animals as kids. Um, and it gave us a lot of room to, to build things as well. Dad Dad was a an engineer, um, engineer school teacher. Mm-hmm. So he would spend quite a lot of time on the farm building things. Mm. So it sounds like sort of practical side of things was important right from the beginning in terms of building, you know, building a house, for example. Dad, Dad would always say he's a jack, jack of all trades, master of none. Mm-hmm. And so certainly that DIY, number eight, why mentality came through very, very strong. And you had some siblings as well? I did, yep, yeah. yep. I, uh, I've got eight siblings. I'm the oldest of nine. Right. <laughs> so quite a large family. Yep. And they're all, they're all doing various different things. Yep. So what was that like growing up? And I haven't interviewed many people who have come from such a big family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. It's um, definitely at the time you um you don't you don't see it as as abnormal mm. um but actually it was great it's really it's really cool having having a large family it's a difficult job as a parent yeah some of some of us weren't the easiest to manage me included but it was um it was certainly interesting growing up and you get a lot of different personalities and i think it gives you a very wide perspective mm. it's interesting isn't it to think about times and how they change because like you know, a hundred years ago, many people had multiple siblings, you know, like six, seven, eight, even nine or 10. Whereas today it's quite unusual, isn't it? It is. It definitely is unusual. Yeah. It's in, it raises some eyebrows when I tell people that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, um, what sort of subjects did you enjoy in school and getting into high school years? Did anything stand out? Uh, I mean, it's probably pretty much what you'd expect for someone with an engineering background, um, I I enjoyed most of the the physics, the chemistry, the maths, um, and that's that's what I was good at. Mm-hmm. I definitely, when I was younger, I was more practically focused. Um, uh, I was I was homeschooled for quite a while when I was younger as well, mm-hmm. and so that you know that that certainly added to that pr- very practical side of things. It was only when I started university that i really switched and, and started focusing on the the academic side of things mm-hmm. yeah and have you reflected much on like the upbringing even what we know so far it's it's probably not your mainstream upbringing <laughs> um, in terms of you know two kids living in the city and going to sort of school and things have you have you reflected on how that's shaped you in terms of homeschooling with eight siblings in the country yeah any thoughts on that yeah, absolutely. It doesn't paint a very good picture sometimes, does it? But <laughs> it, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, actually. And yes, I think there are there are pros and cons. Um, I think one of the biggest benefits is that you don't think the same way as, as everyone else by default. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, I definitely find myself approaching things from first principles all the time. The, the disadvantage is, is, I think, you have to work harder to understand tests and some of the, the standard ways of doing things. Certainly, academically, you have to work harder because you're not as familiar with the system. Um, but all in all, all in all, I would say it's very positive. The thinking, thinking different 
has really has really been a huge advantage for me I think mm. um, and also not coming into things with any assumptions I, I, I don't know a lot of the way things are normally done so yeah I, I, th- I think all in all very very positive yeah it's fascinating to me because I, I often interview people who are doing new ventures and things and quite often there's this theme that there was something in their early childhood or there was something that wasn't sort of the straight out of the box <laughs> sort of way of doing things. For some people, it's been, you know, like they had dyslexia and therefore they had to think outside of the box because the box, you know, they couldn't fit within it. And it, and oftentimes they view that as then that was the superpower that enabled me to become the entrepreneur that I've become. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just curious of, of that linking between what you do today and, and your childhood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the other advantages... Um, are probably more of an ability to just focus on what I what I enjoyed and what I wanted to do, and and I did a lot of that growing up. I spent a huge amount of time working on various things. I'd, I'd build go karts. I'd, I'd spend a lot of time building things. And then when I when I started getting into computers, I was able to sit and program for sixteen hours a day. Um, not not that that was something that my parents supported hugely but i you know i did have a lot more flexibility there mm. that's really yeah it's fascinating because i i was homeschooled for a part of my childhood where my dad had a job in south america so i couldn't go to the local school so i was learning my my mother was the teacher and my sister and i were the students you know and i think it, it did teach me a lot about self-motivation as well because it was like there's there's no one else in the class and here's what you have to read and you're kind of, you get on with it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's definitely an element of, of that as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. So you're coming up to university. Did you know what you wanted to study? Like, was that a easy path to, to dive into? Um, it, c- comparatively, yes. I actually, I would say it was relatively easy. Um, I did, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to study. I wanted to do mechatronics engineering that was largely driven by my background, the, the part, sort of the the interest I had in, in technology and computers, um, and I think those those goals were very clear from fairly young, sort of fifteen. Mm-hmm. That was that was what I wanted to do. Um, the plan for me was always to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so conceptually, I was always. I was always planning on on starting my own business and working f- for myself, um, and part of that was because I didn't I, I didn't think I'd be a very good employee. Right. <laughs> so where did um, that come from? How did that How did that get on your radar that that's what you wanted to head towards? I'm not actually entirely sure. I I knew I wanted to do a combination of electronics and computer science, mm. um, and I think. Mechatronics was just the best degree. It, it ticked all those boxes. The reason I wanted to do that combination of electronics and computer science was, A, I was very interested in programming. I, I spent quite a lot of time writing little programs when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was sort of 13 or 14, I, I started a little business just repairing electronics. Okay. It, it's it's pretty common, and, and there's nothing super complex about it, but you know, it was enough to, to earn some money, and I'd pull them apart and repair them and then trying to understand how those sorts of things worked at a, at a deeper level than just fixing them hmm. was something that I was interested in. So, yeah. 
Quite, it's in, yeah. It's interesting to see that hint of what's to come at age 13 or 14 as well. At that age, you've got a very simplistic view on things, but pointing me in the right direction. and Yeah, someone's paying me to take this thing apart and see how it works, right? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what was university like for you? I would say all in all, probably high school was the most challenging for me academically because that was the big shift. Right. Um, I had to catch up on a lot and learn a lot when I was at, at high school. But during high school, I, I spent... I, um, I spent a lot more time than most people probably just studying and bringing myself up to speed. And so by the time I hit uni, I was sort of used to those six, six seven day weeks and, and spending a, a lot of time studying. So comparatively, uni was quite straightforward. Um, I spent a lot of time outside of uni. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I was at uni, the the first, first year of uni, I built a caravan to live in. Um, and so that took a lot of my extra time and then... Second year, I started another another business, and then third year, I started a, a third business. And in that in that third year, the the business I started turned out to be quite profitable and did quite well. Um, and then, I guess in my in my fourth year, um, halfway through the year, I started working at Rocket Lab full time. So I never really did uni. I didn't dedicate all my time right. to, to uni. There were always side projects. Yeah, whether it was a caravan or a business or uh, doing other work. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I certainly, I certainly put time and effort in but I wasn't aiming for a plus average I was I was aiming for sort of a b average when I when I was at uni I'd, I'd work hard mm-hmm. um but that I would kind of split my time with these other things as well hmm. so it sounded like you had sort of a vision that was beyond just the grades and you know moving into something else <laughs> early on that's the point I'm trying to make here <laughs> Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I, I wouldn't say it was a it was a massively ambitious vision. It kind of stemmed from the fact that I didn't think I would be a very good employee, which sounds a bit strange now. But yeah, that, that was what I, what I thought at the time, mm. and so I just wanted to make sure that I had the best opportunity and that I was I was doing. I, I guess I was planning for for some of these long term goals, mm. and so yeah, that, that's what I did. Yeah, and looking back, what did you learn from those that second and third? startups during your university years what were some of the key takeaways oh there's a there were a lot the um the most profitable startup i had in in uni was building architectural balustrades for um sort of high-end houses and i think it was definitely far it was it was a lot of work Mm. It, it was a huge amount of work and so I think during that year, it, it looked like it was going to be quite profitable when I put a lot of time and effort into it. But one of the biggest things I learned was um, time and effort doesn't necessarily equal good results. Um, f- for me, I could have carried on and it probably would have made a decent amount of money, but it was 80, 100-hour weeks. Mm. You're having to do everything and there are a lot. there are a lot of aspects that you can't outsource mm-hmm. um and so i think i kind of realized that i it makes a lot more sense to focus on something that, that is really scalable if if that's your goal if, if if your goal is to build something really interesting and and that has a huge impact it, it has to be extremely scalable because if it's just kind of scalable you think maybe it'll scale it probably won't and if it's Lots dependent on you 
and the effort that you're putting in, then it can be <laughs> more effort than it seems at the start. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And definitely my background is far more practical in that, that where, you know, the way I was brought up is very much just, just do the work, knuckle down, get it done. And that's very true. That's hugely important. Um, but it's also very important to try and frame things in a more academic way sometimes. Mm. Yep. Yeah, and I like the way you're talking, you know, the scalability of the business proposition. Like, is it a, it's a one-off thing where we're going to employ X number of people and they'll do this thing and we'll get this amount? Or is it something where you could actually take it international and have it be used in the States and the UK and, and everywhere, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Yeah, oh, that's good. So Rocket Lab, you mentioned before, how did that come on the horizon and, and what year are we talking about at this point? That's a good question. It must have been 2016, so about four years ago now. Um, how did that come about? So Rocket Lab reached out to the university and said they were looking for a good mechatronics engineer. Um, I was halfway through my final year, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, one of the lecturers at, at uni reached out and said, is this something you'd be interested in? Um, I don't think there were a huge number of other students that were willing to sort of start working then and there, middle of the year. Right. Um, And Rocket Lab was still very much a startup, and so they just wanted people that day, if possible. Mm. So, yeah, went up, I interviewed, they offered me the the job, and so I I think I started the next Monday. Um, Mm. Flew up, bought a a little Toyota Corolla, and then just just lived in that for for the rest of the year. Right. It's interesting to me, though, what I'm hearing is a pattern of sort of seeing the opportunity and then just diving into it and, and embracing it, you know, like, because I, I think many students would be like, well, I'll get back to you in three or four months when I finished my studies. And that opportunity would have passed by then, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I think um, I think it, uh, that, that was my mindset. My goals weren't to get A pluses. I just wanted to get through with a decent average and and understand everything conceptually um Mm -hmm. and and for me i I would just try and grasp concepts and as long as i got all the concepts and and understood all of the first principles then that was really what mattered um and generally you could you know you'd get your your bees off that so when when the opportunity came up i sort of thought well it'll drop my grades but i'm probably not going to fail i'll just Mm -hmm. um one, go, yeah. go live in my car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think you know once once you've got once you've got some work experience and, and you um you're starting to apply things, it's more valuable. Mm. It, that that was that was the way I looked at it anyway. Yeah. So what was it like at Rocket Lab? Oh, it, it was great. I mean, it's a Rocket Lab is an, is an awesome place to work. Very exciting. Obviously, the mission and what Rocket Lab were trying to achieve was just crazy. Um. So when I joined, it was reasonably small, not not five, ten people, um, but probably on the order of 50 or 60, mm-hmm. um, maybe slightly more. And we were, we were sort of at the point where things were, were still in this real R&D phase. Um, it was at least a year out from the first launch, um, and we were just testing engines and really just trying to trying to make things work mm. 
So it was a great time to join. I think I didn't know it at the time, but it was one of the best decisions I'd made was joining this really exciting company at such an early stage. So I was able to take responsibility of some really key things. So I started out running the hardware simulator. Um, It's like a big rocket that we build on the ground and then we feed signals in and out and it simulates the rocket before before I launch. Um, And for the first... For the first few launches, actually, it was just me building and managing that with the within the GNC team, the Guidance Navigation Control Team, mm-hmm. um, and it was just it was crazy. It was super interesting. We would, you know, we would work fifteen, sixteen hour days, sometimes sometimes more under uh, when we're under pressure. Yeah. yeah, you know, your weekends. It wasn't super. Un- I think I'm, I was probably the only person living in my car, but. Most people were doing big hours, and it wasn't because we had to. It was just because it was really interesting and exciting and these really difficult problems. Mm. Um, and as an engineer, there's nothing more exciting than a massive, ambitious goal and a really hard problem. Mm. Um, re- it's very, very exciting. Yeah. So I, I, I loved it. I loved it. Um, and certainly when we launched the, the first rocket, um, and it actually got off the pad and it, you know, went in the right direction and all that, you know. There's all of these things that just crazy, crazy experience. Because mm. um, I guess behind the scenes, you have a better sense of just the phenomenal amount of the thousands of hours of work, right, to get that thing to happen. Yeah. That it, it makes it look simple when you see it launching and it's going where it's meant to go and it's like, oh, no, that, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> but behind the scenes, yeah, the thousands of hours of work right oh yeah absolutely absolutely and and it's not just the thousands of hours of work it's sort of it is those those all big big days and nights and mm. the and the weekends and, and everyone is part of this big team and a mission um and rockets are very complex um so I certainly, I don't think I'll ever experience that again, you know, launching an orbital class rocket for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, there's not very many people that get to experience that. Yeah. And it was certainly, it was very, very um, exciting when we did launch. Yeah. Super, yeah, super emotional for the team, actually. Yeah. There's something, it's kind of a, a maybe a, a connection to the imagination isn't it you know like the idea that a rocket would go up and and keep going up and you know you watch documentaries about apollo 13 and all the different moon landings and things and realizing at those early stages in the 60s when they were inventing some of this stuff just the complex problems that they were solving with the technology they had at the time so i think anything that continues that legacy of getting into space for some reason as humans we kind of are like wow that you know the imagination is sparked isn't it yeah oh, absolutely um and i think the what 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 nasa did in the 60s is orders of magnitude harder that that really blows my mind we have a lot of advantages with modern technology and computers and, and a lot of the material sciences and mm. And what was it like that second time that the you know you actually got into space what was the what was the feelings <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, there's there is there's nothing nothing quite like it. Um, certainly, the whole team were just over the moon. Mm. Um, to, to make a bad analogy, <laughs> um, so yeah. No, I certainly I certainly remember again same base basic 
um, feeling we we'd all spent this huge amount of time working weekends and mm. and big hours to try and get get it to the point where we thought things were going to work. Um, and then yeah, making it to space. It, it's very weird to think about. We'd only ever tested these things in in simulation, mm. going from a rocket that's only ever been tested on the ground. It's never even, you know, it, it's never been off the ground, and it's all conceptual. Right. So much math and simulation that goes into this, particularly within the the, the GNC team, um, and and also the what I was doing around simulation. If everything has to work, you have had to simulate everything extremely accurately and then be able to predict things and so having that all work and then this rocket end up in space uh, mm. yeah it is yeah unforgettable experience yeah <laughs> it's a real team effort right it is it yeah. is yeah. and what would you say just reflecting back on rocket lab what would you say were some of the key takeaways from that organization thinking about the attitude or the way that they approach their business and what they do is there something that permeates through that you'd say you learned from them Yes, there is. I think the the most significant is ambition, and that goes without saying, given Rocket Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, but Pete Pete's extremely ambitious, uh, deciding to build a an orbital class rocket and launch it from New Zealand's certainly not a normal thing to think. Um, mm. So that kind of carried through to the rest of the people in the organization or it just attracted very ambitious people. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the largest things I took out of that moving with, in, into my own companies, my own ventures was you're much better to set a really, really ambitious goal than to try and be more more reasonable and more iterative, just think really really big um and it's going to be harder to get there but all all problems are hard or most businesses are really hard in some way and so you might as well put that time into solving a really really large problem if mm. if you're really serious about making making the biggest impact mm. um yeah so going for those audacious you know the business plan that's like wow <laughs> yeah it sounds a little bit cliche i suppose but i think there's always or naturally um you tend to be a little bit more conservative and sort of say oh you know maybe that's a bit big or we probably can't realistically do that mm-hmm. um and that's that's just the opposite of an entrepreneur's mindset, really, you, you know, you have to you have to assume that you're going to succeed, mm. um, or you have to assume that there is some chance of success. Mm. And in a lot of cases, there isn't, and and not not that many startups actually succeed. But the ones that do um, often succeed in a big way because they're focused on a really big problem. And if they've got enough pull and enough support, um, I think that's really what makes these unlikely success stories succeed Mm. yeah that's really good i'd like to shift the focus now to what you're doing today um but i know what you're doing today had a precursor with all goods and and different things can you just describe you're working at rocket lab it sounds like you've always had different projects on the boil (laughs) so how is this other venture starting to formulate and become something yeah absolutely so i started all goods 
with a couple of other guys while I was while I was still at Rocket Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of came out of a problem I had when I was younger. Um, it was it was really difficult for these SMEs or for, for myself as a small business to get online in a simple and easy way. Um, and I think we really thought that there was a, a huge opportunity starting here in New Zealand and then potentially moving globally just around solving that the uh, the inventory side and l- managing inventory and then getting it online in a simple and easy way. Um, so I moved to a contractor's role at Rocket Lab, so I was still there. At the time, I was still there five days a week, um, and I would just fly back to Christchurch on the weekends. And then over time, I moved that to three days a week. And so everyone in Christchurch would just work off set. They'd start on Wednesday and work through to Sunday. And then I would work at Rocket Lab Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I had three days with the Rocket Lab team and then four days with the Christchurch team. Mm-hmm. Um, and overall, August was, I would I would call it moderately successful. We, over, over two years, we grew that to a bit over 50,000 active users and over a thousand registered active businesses mm-hmm. um, and for New Zealand that's that's pretty good however it is very hard to make money well it's hard to make money anything consumer facing but particularly consumer facing marketplaces you either need decent margins or you need serious serious scale scale, scale right yeah. yeah like the ebays and that's yeah. exactly right yeah right yeah um, and we didn't intend to compete with TradeMe early on. There have been heaps of TradeMe competitors come and go, and then it's just very hard to disrupt. But over time, it became clear that really the network effect that TradeMe had was just too strong. Mm-hmm. Even if there was some pain around getting online or pain around managing inventory, it didn't matter. The, the buyers were on TradeMe, or over time the buyers were on Facebook Marketplace. But it just it, it isn't possible to disrupt that without serious investment mm. um and you have to get that core group of people first you know it's this, this classic chicken egg problem so yeah we kind and of realized yeah and i guess if there's a competitor like trade me that is also selling property and you know like it's a it's a big a big organization in multiple sectors <laughs> so that must be hard to then break in to a part of it it is. It is. And I think one of the biggest learnings out of all goods was to avoid competition. It's a classic Peter Thiel saying. Um, mm-hmm. Competition is for losers. I think he, he likes to say. But um, I think it's a little bit inflammatory, but it's true. Really, if you're if you're in a space that has a huge amount of competition, like we were with that marketplace. It's very, very hard to win. It's it's hard to take on any kind of large incumbent like Trade Me. Mm-hmm. You're much better to focus on a smaller but more global unsolved problem. Mm-hmm. Um, just you're almost universally better to go niche. There are not very many business models I've come across where you are better to start broad. Right. Um, so. That was a that was a very long learning experience mm. for us. But so that yeah. had, was it about two years? You said that you were doing it, operating it. It was about two years from 
maybe slightly longer from mm-hmm. conception to us deciding that we weren't going to be able to compete and it was only ever going to be a moderately successful business. Mm. Um, and how did you, um, well, two questions. The first one is how did you find your co-founders or your, the people who were involved from the beginning? Because Nathan, I think, was there yeah. from the start. How, how would you know each other? Um, I, I've known them since I was young. Mm. Um, either met at uni and they just lined up with everything that, that, that I was looking for in a co-founder. Nathan, I've known for years and he was one of the first people I started talking to about the idea. Um, mm-hmm. He spent five years living in Indonesia and then another year living in China. So he, um, he was a lot more familiar with how different countries did things and all the different dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just a, a hustler. He worked extremely hard mm-hmm. um, and he was really smart and, and thought things through carefully yeah so and, and nathan is still co-founder um yeah uh, yeah right and I, partly yeah because i've been helping out a bit with some of the partly legal type of things and and i can vouch for that that nathan's very active there sending emails checking out you know doing lots of work so it's awesome to have somebody that you trust like that in a key role exactly exactly no it's always good you always want to have that it's, you know the the hacker, the the hustler, and the hipster. I think they say, and and Mark's always been our hipster. Mm-hmm. Um, just design and creative is what he he loves and what he does. Um, I kind of cross between the the hacker and the and the hustler, and then we've got Evan mm-hmm. and Nathan that that they just are very very good at what they do. So we've we've got we've done very well in terms of co-founders. Mm, that's awesome. So tell me about the meeting where you realize that it's not working the way you wanted it to. Was it a meeting or was it just a gradual realization like we need to do something a bit different or yeah, how did that go? I think it was a gradual realization. Um again, as an entrepreneur, you're very you're you really do believe that what you're going to do will succeed. Mm. Um, and giving up is not something that even crosses your mind. Like that's, that's admitting failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we'd really known deep down for some time that the math didn't add up. We just weren't being intellectually honest. Right. Um, and I'd spent quite a lot of time just looking at our data, trying to understand where we could find our niche um and it was really out of that um probably two weeks i spent just digging through our data analyzing patterns and trying to break things down by Mm. location and community and category and type um and it was out of all of that that we realized that automotive parts were just kind of in a category of their own Mm. both in terms of the potential, but also in terms of the difficulty. Very, very hard problems to solve. Mm. Extremely difficult to get these parts online because you've got to match them up with the right buyers and it's quite a small number of buyers. Mm. So it's not like a like an iPhone where you list it and there's thousands of buyers. You're listing a very specific part for a specific car and there's there might be 10 buyers in, in New Zealand. Um and yeah, so it's very niche. It's, it's a <laughs> yeah, it's very niche, and so the time and effort to list a part and and then figure out which vehicle it fits, it's 
it's a hundred times, probably without exaggerating, a hundred times mm. harder than the average than mm. most other things. Yeah, um, because you've got that fitment aspect, saying what it fits and knowing knowing what it fits, and and then even being able to sell it because they're so you, you, your market size is so much smaller. Mm. Well, the thing that fascinates me about your story is that you had a business which was all goods. You know, it's it's running moderately well. It's it's doing what it's meant to do. But then you had this pivot and you said, actually, we, we could do better. We, we could scale more. Um, and that's what's interesting to me because I think a lot of people might just continue operating that first initiative that they've put years into and, and it will get better. We just need to spend more time. But I admire, I guess, the, the courage to say, you know what? We need to pull the plug on this part of our journey and start something a bit fresh. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it certainly it, it was certainly was one of the hardest decisions we've had to make, mm. um, and certainly you it was very very difficult mentally and trying to convince everyone that it was the right move. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it definitely didn't happen in one day. Even after we saw the data, it was probably a good month after that before we finally pulled the trigger, mm. and that was just really going back and forth and like you say if it if it just failed then it's a it's failed when it's moderately successful mm. it's really really hard to o- overcome that mental barrier mm-hmm. um but ultimately it was definitely the right decision so in hindsight mm. it was an easy decision yeah yeah it's just fascinating you know like that the word we're using is moderately successful like i can imagine you'd be invited to to pitches and you know be presenting at this event or you're going to this startup accelerator or whatever and you're you're doing pretty good you know it's it's a business it's operating you've got staff you've got income it's working but then to look at yourselves in the mirror and go you know what we need to change things up Um, because it's around that time I think that I think it was Nathan um, who maybe gave me a call and said that you know we're headed in this new direction and um, yeah, it's it's a big call to to jump off and do something different. Absolutely, absolutely, it, it is. Um, but I I think it comes down to fundamentals, really. And again, like I said before, being really intellectually honest. So we looked at our market and said, how big could this be? How big could this be if we move into this new space that looks interesting and looks better all round? Mm. Um, and when we were really intellectually honest with ourselves and with the team and said, from from first principles, this new venture could be over a, a thousand times bigger, th- then it starts to become more clear. Yeah. Um, and that's that scalability word, right, that we talked about at the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what Partly is doing, like, as we're talking now, it's... Um, end of January 2021 and you know it's a moment in time how's it been going and and yeah what what's happening Part, partly is going incredibly well um it's very it's a very very difficult space we knew it was hard but even then it's harder than we expected there are a huge number of real complex nuances mm. we have done very well in terms of attracting customers over 90% of our customers are now in Europe or America with multiple Fortune 500 companies, which which is pretty exciting for us 
having only been around less than a year. Mm. We're getting a lot of really good inbound, a lot, a lot of businesses approaching us, so we haven't had to do much outbound yet in terms of, in terms of sales. Mm-hmm. The real challenges are around the, the, the product, I think. Um, we wouldn't have been able to do this without all goods. We've, we've leveraged a l- huge amount of knowledge and, and skills and even data just that we've accumulated over time so right now extremely exciting very very hard technical problems to solve but as i said before with rocket lab as an engineer i love that the um the engineers that we have working for us now are exceptional we've been able to attract some really interesting people and because we're having to solve these massive difficult global problems it's a, just a, it's a great place to have engineers. Mm. So that's been exciting. We've got some really cool people. Um, we've we've over doubled the size of the team in the last four, four months, mm-hmm. and we're expecting to hit somewhere around thirty by by the end of this year, mm-hmm. within the next ten months or so. Um, and it's all about scaling and growing into into the European and US markets and solving these really difficult problems and and what it comes down to is linking parts and vehicles and providing a platform to do that mm-hmm. and helping these businesses get their parts online mm-hmm. um, and as we as we found it's not a problem that's limited to small or medium businesses we've got huge huge customers mm-hmm. that we're working working with now that all share the same problem mm-hmm. So what would you say to an entrepreneur or somebody who's starting their own business, having been involved in multiple ones? <laughs> um, what would be some of your key advice to people? <laughs> That's a good, good question. O- oddly enough, I don't, I don't really feel qualified to give this sort of advice. But um, obviously the, the first one from my perspective would be try and be very intellectually honest about your business. Think about it from first principles what does success look like if you really succeed? What do the, the numbers look like? There are, there are thousands, millions of really good ideas out there that you just can't make work. Mm. Um, and so I think, for me personally anyway, I was a far more naive on that and really being honest about whether or not something's going to work is important. If you're an entrepreneur, you're probably going to ignore that advice and just do it anyway because you believe it's going to work and that's great. <laughs> um, I think the next thing I'd say is be, especially in New Zealand, is be super, super ambitious. Definitely don't limit yourself to New Zealand. Um, well, European and US markets are harder than New Zealand. Um, they're also easier in some other ways. They're easier in that you you can get, there's far more potential for just organic, inbound, random people contacting you. Mm. There's far more potential for investment. There's far more potential for just weird partnerships and things that mm. come up that are just crazy mm. and work so well. Um, They're just bigger markets, aren't they? There's there's more there's more quantity and and people out there. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we we launched our we launched an app, um, and we got about. 40,000 downloads in New Zealand and we were advertising, we were pushing that really hard, really aggressively for about two months. We got the same number of downloads, around 40,000 downloads in America and that was purely off the name, just 
there was a statistically a small number of people that were searching in the app store and that number of people was equal to this money and effort and time mm. almost two two months worth in in New Zealand so it was after that it really highlighted how how important it was to think about things a bit more globally because if we were in America we could have made the same the same money and and only had 0.1% of the population whereas in New Zealand we need 10% of the population mm. so i think that's that's very key as well mm. and we're talking we're here in Christchurch um even based here from childhood, um, how how does that work in terms of operating a business that's growing globally? And you know, what's it like operating from here? Do you see that as a, a future trend that more people will be based in Christchurch and, and doing this globally? Or yeah, what are your thoughts on that? It's an interesting one. Um, again, pros and cons. I would say overall, it's been massively positive for us. There are extremely talented people here in Christchurch and in New Zealand as a whole. There's a lot of people that want to move to New Zealand or work from New Zealand because we're such a cool place to be, not just because of COVID, um, but also just as a lifestyle and as a mm. as a place. It's really um, it's it's a really good place to work. So that's been really interesting. I think the downsides are probably working with businesses in in Europe. We you know we start at. 3 4 a.m in the morning these days because we're trying to talk to these businesses that are 12 13 hours right away so the time difference is a killer so the time difference yeah. is is a, a real killer um particularly for salespeople, you just have to have salespeople in in europe or in america if you're going to be doing business in america or europe so that's it's a bit challenging um i think you are a lot more limited in terms of who you can hire if if we really grow large, we're certainly going to struggle to hire 500 exceptional engineers here in Christchurch. Um, but with the ability to go remote, and the whole world is very used to remote now, after after the last year particularly, I, I don't think it's a big issue. So I I think I can see us actually being here for quite some time. Mm. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I think there's a lot of pluses, and I, I think it's going to be fascinating when borders open up a bit more if we don't find that there's a trend of people who used to work in large cities in Europe or America who want to move to New Zealand because they've realized that they can work remotely <laughs> and they could be based here with the beach accessible, the mountains accessible, you know, and um, the lifestyle reasons kind of kick in as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean, remote work is a big part of how we do business as well. We're not we're not remote first, and that everyone's remote, but you do open yourselves up to far more people and more talent by by mm. going remote. So yeah, 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 it makes sense. Mm. And just um, maybe getting towards the end of the interview, but just thinking about Teohaka and Ministry of Awesome and that sort of environment. Do you mind describing that for people and and what that's been like? It's been good, yeah. Um, I mean, we're we're in our own office now. We've moved out, um, but for the stage we were at, it's it was it was great. Um, it makes a big difference being surrounded by other people going through the same stage, and second to that, having a bit of a support network or 
an understanding of who knows who or what tools and resources there are available. Mm. Again, as an entrepreneur, or, or certainly for myself, you tend to be almost almost a little bit arrogant to frame it negatively. Mm. <laughs> um, where where you, you always always assume that you're moving in the right direction um, and that you don't need any help. And, and I think it's always good to have a support network, even if you decide that you've got a better uh, better idea or a better way of doing things, at least knowing where, the, where everyone else is and what's available is extremely important. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, accessing the right experts as well on, on different things. I know we were at an event recently where Rob Vickery was speaking, and I know he's involved in your journey as well now. Um, so, yeah, having people like that to, to lean on and ask advice of, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So the future, um, we're 10 years from now. <laughs> what does it look like? Well, our mission is to connect the world's parts. Um, so we we want to be the infrastructure or the platform that allows any business anywhere to get their parts online and mm. connect them with other businesses. Um, we don't want to be the, the front-facing product we want to be the infrastructure um and for us that represents a huge market um so uh, in 10 years i really think we could be a massively successful globally uh, global global company operating from from both the states and and europe um in terms of overall overall market size it's it's huge we we could keep growing at a crazy pace for the next ten years, um, and we still we still wouldn't control that much of the market. But mm. really, yeah, we we want to connect the world's parts. We want to be the tool that allows businesses to talk to other businesses. Well, it's been great to talk with you. And um, people, some people listening know me as the voice of this podcast, but I'm also actually a lawyer. <laughs> so it's been fun to journey with you on that side of things too, and and provide some support there. Um, and just seeing entrepreneurs coming up, based here in Christchurch, it's a yeah, it's a really exciting phase to to look around and realize there's quite a few people doing some really innovative and new things here. Oh, absolutely, I totally agree, and and, uh, and thanks for the interview. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Levi. There was lots of things that stood out for me, and it's been really fun to be on the journey with him. Probably the key reflection from that was the idea that you do need to ask hard questions if your venture is going along just with quote marks, fine. And because you can continue putting time and energy and effort into something, and ultimately you have to ask, is this actually what we want it to be? If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog. Until next time.